Macmillan Audio presents The Richest Man in Babylon, the complete original edition, by George S. Clapham, read for you by Tara Ward. Note to listeners, this audiobook features a bonus story, Acres of Diamonds, by Russell H. Conway. Ahead of you stretches your future like a road leading into the distance. Along that road are ambitions you wish to accomplish, desires you wish to gratify. To bring your ambitions and desires to fulfillment, you must be successful with money. Use the financial principles made clear in the pages which follow. Let them guide you away from the stringencies of a lean purse to that fuller, happier life a full purse makes possible. Like the law of gravity, they are universal and unchanging. May they prove for you, as they have proven to so many others, a sure key to a fat purse, larger bank balances, and gratifying financial progress. Slow money is plentiful for those who understand. The simple rules of its acquisition. Start thy purse to fatten it. Control thy expenditures. Make thy gold multiply. Guard thy treasures from loss. Make of thy dwelling a profitable investment. Ensure a future income. Increase thy ability to earn. Introduction. Hi, this is Joel Patino, Vice President and Editorial Director of St. Martin's Essential. Pay yourself first. You've heard that phrase, now a popular and widely used personal finance principle, and it came from the book you're about to read. The Richest Man in Babylon might be the most famous and powerful book you've never heard of, even though the book has sold millions of copies since its original publication in nearly 100 years and has influenced countless people to live a richer life. It's still not as well known as some of its counterparts, such as Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. The richest man in Babylon, however, is every bit as effective and potent as those classics. So, what is this book you're about to read? Well, The Richest Man in Babylon actually began as a series of pamphlets that author George S. Clayson created as a result of the success he experienced in his business. Clayson had founded a publishing company, the Clayson Math Company, Denver, Colorado, and is credited with having created the first roadmap of the United States and Canada. He beat Rand McNally to the market by a year. His success prompted him to create a series of pamphlets with tips for saving money, planning for the future, and more, which he published and distributed to companies, banks, and other organizations. He collected many of these pamphlets into a book, The Richest Man in Babylon, which he published himself just as the Great Depression had caused many businesses to fail, including Clayson's own. The book connected with readers and sold very well, so that Clayson was able to live well off the book's success for the rest of his days. What's the big deal, you might ask, about a series of pamphlets that gave personal finance advice? Aren't there countless other pamphlets and books financial self-help ideas that have come and gone over the years? 
why has this one endured all of these years and still sells as well, if not better than ever? Clayton wanted to share his ideas about wealth building with others, but he had a unique hook. Instead of writing a dry how-to that could bore readers and quickly become dated, Clayton shared his wealth building tips in the form of parables. These short parables all take place in ancient Babylon. Since they are parables, Clayton was able to impart important financial wisdom in a delightful, fun manner. And since the parables are set in ancient Babylon, they have an almost biblical feel to them. Furthermore, the advice Clayton gave was timeless and easy to apply. Consider some of the chapter titles in the book. Seven Cures for a Lean Purse. Meet the Goddess of Good Luck. The Five Laws of Gold. How could someone who needs advice about money or is a little down on their luck not want to read those? And now it's your turn to meet the charming characters of the richest man in Babylon, including Banser, Kabi, and especially Archaeus, the wise teacher. Here's what I'll suggest. At the end of each chapter, pause and reflect on what the main points or points were in the chapter, and consider how they could apply in your own life. In this way, the book will go from something you just read to something that you use. We've also included something special in this edition, the full text of Acres of Diamonds by Russell H. Conwell, a well-known minister, orator, lawyer, and writer in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Acres of Diamonds is one of the most popular inspirational pieces ever published and has sold tens of millions of copies since its first publication. Just as The Richest Man in Babylon began its life as a series of pamphlets, Acres of Diamonds began its life as an inspirational speech inspired by Conwell's travels in the Middle East and first given in 1890. The response was so overwhelming that Conwell was asked to give it again to a new audience, and then again, and again. In fact, he gave the speech a reported 6,152 times in his lifetime. He would often tweak it slightly in various retellings, but the bulk of his main points and the inspirational message always remained the same. Acres of Diamonds has a central theme. Everything you need is already within you. Like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, the reader learns that you don't need to travel to faraway places in search of riches or opportunities. Rather, the metaphorical diamonds are there in abundance, right where you are, waiting for the Acres of Diamonds lecture was so popular that the income Conwell made delivering it was used in a variety of meaningful ways, including the founding of Temple University in Pennsylvania. This one speech, later published as a slim volume, helped to create a university that has taught and educated countless people and continues to do so to this very day. After Conwell's death, proceeds from Acres of Diamonds were given to a homeless shelter in Philadelphia. What an amazing legacy.
have before you two timeless tales to teach you, urge you forward, and help you create a lifetime of riches. The messages in these books not only transformed the lives of the authors, but they have transformed the lives of millions of people all around the world for all of these years. And now you have the opportunity to be inspired by these stories to create your own dreams come true. Joel Kosikas, New York, September 2021. About the author. George Samuel Classen was born in Louisiana, Missouri on November 7, 1874. He attended the University of Nebraska and served in the United States Army during the Spanish-American War. Beginning a long career in publishing, he founded the Classen Map Company of Denver, Colorado and published the first road atlas of the United States and Canada. In 1926, he issued the first of a famous series of pamphlets on thrift and financial success, using parables set in ancient Babylon to make each of his points. These were distributed in large quantities by banks and insurance companies and became familiar to millions, the most famous being The Richest Man in Babylon, the parable from which the present volume takes its title. These Babylonian parables have become a modern inspirational classic. Forward. Our prosperity as a nation depends upon the personal financial prosperity of each of us as individuals. This book deals with the personal successes of each of us. Success means accomplishments as the result of our own efforts and abilities. Proper preparation is the key to our success. Our acts can be no wiser than our thoughts. Our thinking can be no wiser than our understanding. This book of cures for Dean Percy has been termed a guide to financial understanding. That indeed is its purpose, to offer those who are ambitious for financial success an insight which will aid them to acquire money, to keep money, and to make their surpluses earn more money. In the pages which follow, we are taken back to Babylon, the cradle in which was nurtured the basic principles of finance now recognized and used the world over. To new listeners, the author is happy to extend the wish that its pages may contain for them the same inspiration for growing bank accounts, greater financial successes, and the solution of difficult personal financial problems so enthusiastically reported by listeners from coast to coast. To the business executives who have distributed these tales in such generous quantities to friends, relatives, employees, and associates, the author takes this opportunity to express his gratitude. No endorsement could be higher than that of practical men who appreciate its teachings because they themselves have worked up to important successes by applying the very principles it advocates. Babylon became the wealthiest city of the ancient world because its citizens were the richest people of their time. They appreciated the value of money. They practiced sound financial principles in acquiring money, keeping money, and making their money earn more money. They provided for themselves what we all desire, income for the future. 
historical sketch of Babylon. In the pages of history, there lives no city more glamorous than Babylon. Its very name conjures visions of wealth and splendor. Its treasures of gold and jewels were fabulous. One naturally pictures such a wealthy city as located in a suitable setting of tropical luxury, surrounded by rich natural resources of forests and mines. Such was not the case. It was located beside the Euphrates River in a flat, arid valley. It had no forests, no mines, not even stone for building. It was not even located upon a natural trade route. The rainfall was insufficient to raise crops. Babylon is an outstanding example of man's ability to achieve great objectives using whatever means are at his disposal. All of the resources supporting this large city were man-developed. All of its riches were man-made. Babylon possessed just two natural resources, a fertile soil and water in the river. With one of the greatest engineering accomplishments of this or any other day, Babylonian engineers diverted the waters from the river by means of dams and immense irrigation canals. Far out across that arid valley went those canals to pour the life-giving waters over the fertile soil. This ranks among the first engineering feats known to history. Such abundant crops as were the reward of this irrigation system the world had never seen before. Fortunately, during its long existence, Babylon was ruled by successive lines of kings whom conquest and plunder were but incidental. While it engaged in many wars, most of these were local or defensive against ambitious conquerors from other countries who coveted the fabulous treasures of Babylon. The outstanding rulers of Babylon live in history because of their wisdom, enterprise, and justice. Babylon produced no strutting monarchs who sought to conquer the known world that all nations might pay homage to their egotism. As a city, Babylon exists no more. When those energizing human forces that built and maintained the city for thousands of years were withdrawn, it soon became a deserted ruin. The site of the city is in Asia, about 600 miles east of the Suez Canal, just north of the Persian Gulf. Susan Erickson. The world is full of obvious things which nobody by any chance ever observes. Sherlock Holmes. From the Greek 
autopsia to see for oneself. Chapter 1 A fiery sunset burns out along the darkening horizon in Old Town Alexandria at not quite 5 p.m. the Monday after Thanksgiving. The wind is kicking up and fitful, the moon shrouded by fog rolling in from the Potomac River. Trees and shrubbery shake and thrash, dead leaves swirling and skittering over the tarmac. Ominous clouds advance like an enemy army, the flags flapping wildly in front of my northern Virginia headquarters. I crouch down by the fireproof file cabinet, entering the combination on the fail-safe push-button lock, opening the bottom drawer. I lift out the thick accordion folder I've been hauling around for many months. I smell the musty oldness of declassified government documents going back to the late 1940s, many heavily redacted and almost illegible. I've got much to review before the next meeting of the National Emergency Contingency Coalition, better known as the Doomsday Commission, this time at the Pentagon. My White House-appointed responsibilities aren't for the faint of heart, but they're not nearly as pressing as what's right in front of me, and I can't stop thinking about the murdered woman downstairs in my cooler. I envision the slashes to her neck, the bloody stump left when her hands were severed, and I don't know who she is. I know virtually nothing about her beyond what her dead body has to say. Dumped like trash by railroad tracks on Dangerfield Island, several miles north of here. After spending the entire weekend on her, I'm no further along. Not even a month on the job, and it's been one ugly conundrum after another, accompanied by plenty of obstructions and hostilities. It's an understatement that my presence isn't appreciated, and I've been handed quite the mess. Taking off my lab coat, draping it over my office chair, I cover my microscope for the night as distant thunder cracks and reverberates, lightning shimmering. From my second-story corner suite, I have quite the ringside seat for weather-related drama. The parking lot we share with the forensic labs has emptied quickly, streetlights blinking on blearily. Dozens of scientists, doctors, and other staff hurry to their cars as rain spatters my window. I don't know most people yet, and just as many don't remember me from what seems another life ago. Millennials in particular weren't around when I was the first woman chief medical examiner of Virginia. I ran the statewide system more than a decade before moving on. I assumed I'd left for good, never imagining I'd be back. And I hope I haven't made the biggest mistake of my life. On wall-mounted flat screens, I can monitor live images of my building inside and out. And the night shift security guard is walking through the cavernous vehicle bay this moment. I feel like a ghost or a spy 
as he yawned and scratches, unmindful of the closed-circuit TV cameras overhead. In his 60s, his first name is Wyatt, but I don't know his last. He looks like a sheriff in his khaki uniform with brown pocket flaps, walking up the concrete ramp leading inside the morgue, pressing a button on the cinder block wall. The massive door begins rolling down in the swirling exhaust of the hearse driving out. Probably the suicide from Fairfax County, based on bodies scheduled for release. Dr. Scarpetta. My officious British secretary interrupts my ruminations, opening the door between her office and mine. So sorry to disturb you. She's not sorry in the least, rarely bothering to knock. I'm about to head out, and you should do the same. I move window to window, closing the blinds. I just spoke to August Bryan, she announces. He wanted you to know that a situation has come up requiring your assistance. Is this about the woman downstairs, I presume? And the U.S. Park Police investigator and I haven't talked since Friday night. I'm hoping he finally has new information. The case is getting traction in the media, and rumors and theories are on the Internet. It's almost impossible to solve a violent crime when you don't know the victim's identity. He needs you to meet him somewhere. My secretary acts as if I answered to her instead of the other way around. Dressed in her typical couture of a tweedy skirt suit and loafers, her steely gray hair styled like the 1950s, Maggie Cutbush eyes me disapprovingly over the wire-rimmed glasses perched on the tip of her sharp nose. He needs to meet me for what reason, I start to say. He'll explain, she interrupts. Why didn't you just put him on the phone with me? He could have called directly for that matter. I gave him my cell number at the scene Friday night. August and I have worked together for years. He was polite enough to check with me first, and will call you when he's in his car, she says in her lovely London accent, having zero respect for a woman in charge. Certainly not a second-generation Italian who grew up poor in Miami. I collect my coat from the coat rack. I'm eager to get out of here, and not because of present company and the weather. Today is my niece's birthday, a difficult one with all that's gone on, and I planned a quiet celebration at home, just family. One of Dr. Reddy's strengths is he knows how to delegate. Maggie hasn't finished lecturing. He didn't hand out his personal contact information like Halloween candy, as if I do. He made it clear he wasn't at the beck and call of the police. It's a lesson you'd be well served to learn. At every opportunity, she can't resist mentioning her former boss, the chief I replaced under somewhat false pretenses, as it turns out. Or bait and switch might better summarize what happened once I'd moved here from Massachusetts. Everything changed in the blink of an eye. It was too late by the time I discovered that Elvin Reddy wasn't leaving state government for the 
private sector as I was promised by him and others high up the chain. Instead, he was appointed the new health commissioner of Virginia, overseeing all departments responsible for the well-being and safety of the public. That includes the statewide Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, OCME, meaning I answered to him when push comes to shove. A slick political trick if ever I heard one. As you're seeing, it doesn't take long for people to get entitled, Maggie says ironically. I'd suggest you take an investigator with you. Fabian's on call tonight. He was at his desk when I walked past a few minutes ago. It depends on what we're dealing with, I replied. It probably won't be necessary. I believe I can manage. Looking around for the spray bottle of filtered water, I spotted on a shelf near the conference table. It's unwise for the chief to show up at all, much less alone. And it's not a good precedent for you to start, Maggie says, as if I just fell off the turnip truck. Look, I'm sure you have my best interests in mind. I'm not rude about it, not even snide. I believe that goes without saying. She dominates our shared doorway as I step around boxes of books and other personal belongings I've yet to unpack. I realize my style isn't your cup of tea, Maggie. I begin spritzing my fiddly fig tree and potted orchids. But I'm not the sort to stand on ceremony. If I can't be bothered, then why should anyone else? It's all I can do not to admit the major reason I was asked to become chief again. The number of cases that have been neglected and mishandled for years is stunning, especially here in Northern Virginia, which has its own special problems because of our location. My office is but five miles from the Pentagon, and I stipulated that if I took this job, I had to work out of the headquarters here in Alexandria. Considering the various national obligations my husband and I have, it's important we're in close proximity to Washington, D.C. If the police want my help, that's why I'm here. I tell Maggie what I have before. They don't need to go through you. I suppose we should postpone Lucy's birthday gathering. She curtly changes the subject. Benton, Pete Marino, your sister, anybody else, I'll let them know. Nobody else, and I agree that's probably wise. I'll never stop feeling awful about disappointing everyone on a regular basis. But violence and senseless tragedy don't care who you are or the occasion, and someone has to respond. Returning to my desk, I vow to make it up to Lucy as I've vowed so many times before. I can't imagine how difficult it must be. Maggie grimly shakes her head with phony sympathy. Losing her partner and adopted son, she says. And I don't intend to discuss my niece and why she's living at home. Not that I really understand that lifestyle, but this time of year, everything's harder for people who are unhappy. 
No reason to wait. I tell her it's fine to leave and to drive carefully in the wind and rain as I ignore how offensive she can be. I'll see what's going on with August Ryan. Hopefully, he has something helpful about the murdered woman in my cooler. One doesn't need to be a forensic pathologist to determine that she died of exsanguination after her carotid arteries were transected by a sharp blade. I don't know how old she is, possibly in her late 20s or early 30s, when someone fractured her skull from behind, cutting her throat down to the spine. Last Friday night was stormy as I worked the scene in a remote wooded area of Dangerfield Island. I can almost smell the creosote-treated wood, raindrops smacking on railroad ties as I went over every inch of the body with a hand magnifier. The beams of tactical flashlights slashed through the blackness like a laser show as cops searched the area. Nothing turned up except a flattened penny, possibly run over by the 7 p.m. commuter train as the engineer spotted what he thought was a naked mannequin sprawled by the rails. I hate to screw up your evening, August Ryan drawls right off when I answer my phone, because I'm pretty sure I'm about to, and I can tell you already that it's not pleasant driving out here. But as I explained to Maggie a little while ago, I wouldn't ask if it wasn't important. What can I do for you? I write down the time and date in a pocket-sized moleskin notebook. We've got a missing person, and it's not looking good. The park police investigator wastes no time getting to the point. I'm sorry, is this about Friday night's case? I puzzle. Are you thinking this missing person might be the murdered woman in my cooler? It's sounding like it could be. Alexandria PD called me after one of their officers did a wellness check on someone who's vanished. I'm on my way to your neck of the woods. Colonial landing on the waterfront, he startles me by adding. I know the new residential development all too well. Pete Marino and my sister Dorothy have a place there. The luxury townhomes and easy walk from the historic district where Benton and I bought an old estate that needs some fixing up. Lucy lives with us in the guest house. Everybody's safely close by for once. Or so I thought. Not that any location is immune from violence. 